In this episode, Anup Singh, CFO at Illumio, describes his approach to creating a culture of excellence, outlines the new skills and people that a finance team requires in today's world, and explains why investing in infrastructure and technology is fundamental to scale. Hi, I'm Ross, and this is the CFO Playbook. Each week, you'll get insights from world-class financial leaders to help you grow your company, yourself, and face the challenges required of today's CFO. Anup, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Great to be here, Ross. I'd love to start, Anup, by exploring perhaps your experiences, geographic experiences. So you've been, you're in the Bay Area now, you've, you've led many really impressive tech companies out there. But in your early education and your early career, you're, of course, based over in the UK, which is where Soldo and, and where I'm based. So like, how does it compare the your formative experiences as a student firstly, and then an accountant and finance professional with now being a finance leader in the Bay Area? So as you mentioned, I've been in the Bay Area, Silicon Valley, for the past 25 years now in a variety of, of leadership roles in finance. I've been a CFO you know, since 2006, so for the last 15 years. Now, prior to the Bay Area, as you mentioned, I lived in the UK for about eight years in, in total. I was educated at Cambridge University in England. I studied economics and, and management science. And you know, actually something that was really interesting is, is Cambridge has a business school now, which is called uh, the Judge Business School. I was amongst the first sort of group of students who passed through the, the Judge Institute. And on that note, it's just, it's great to see the growth from a, just a, a technology standpoint that's been coming out of, of Cambridge the past few years. I think the university has a lot of close associations and partnerships with industry. And that obviously is a, a trend in America in which, you know, the top sort of universities and schools such as Stanford in the Bay Area, as an example, is deeply entrenched in, in the entrepreneurial sort of environment of Silicon Valley. So after Cambridge, I, I'm also a, a chartered accountant in, in the UK. So I did my ACA qualification and uh, I trained with EY. So at the time it was Ernst & Young, the big four accounting firm. And actually it was through EY that an opportunity had opened up in their office in San Jose in, in 1996. It was early days in, in the Valley, a year after the Netscape IPO and I thought it was it was a wonderful opportunity to come and spend some time in California, and it's been twenty five years, and here I am. And you're not you're not tempted away from the beautiful sunshine of, of uh, California back to the rainy uh, rainy UK climate. England is fantastic. I, I have a <laughs> ton of great friends and colleagues, and you know the memories I have of of being there is is wonderful. But the Bay Area is home. You know, it's especially in the you know the work I do, the field I'm in. I'm a builder. I love to build companies. I love to drive sort of growth and scale and and build things. And 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 I think this ecosystem that we have here in the Silicon Valley Bay Area is is ideally suited to you know encouraging and 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 really to cultivate you know the environment of growth and and building things. And so I'm just having a ball of a time, uh, just having a ton of fun, Ross. So. I can imagine. The one thing that I've noticed and and you and many have, have noticed as you observe the the global technology sector is that throughout the the challenges of the pandemic of course it's been challenging in so many ways for so many parts of society but the technology has come into its own in the way that it started to underpin how companies operate, how people communicate and so on. 
And what I've noticed as well, if you look at the global sector five, even 10 years ago, it was dominated, heavily dominated by the Bay Area. But there seems to be an increasing number of companies that are emerging in different parts of the world. And now not just in the US, but in Europe and so forth as well. Being based in the Bay Area, is that something that you have observed that, that maybe the slight decentralization of technology companies or actually does it still feel that the Bay Area is the epicenter? It's a trend that began even before the pandemic. And I think the pandemic has actually accelerated that sort of, you know, the fact that you have these great companies, you know, that are being developed and built in technology and you don't need to be in a certain geographic area or location. I think, you know, the Bay Area has certain advantages, you know, because of that ecosystem that is cultivated, you know, but now the availability of capital in the UK, as an example, you've got a ton of entrepreneurial sort of companies. I think a lot of, uh, of schools around the world have invested sort of greatly in, you know, STEM programs. So you're getting some great engineers and, and great expertise in business schools. So I certainly don't think that, you know, the entrepreneurial sort of animal sort of spirits, if you will, is, is, is constrained to the Bay Area. I've seen an acceleration of that. You know, there are lots of great companies and, and technologies that are absolutely you know emerging all around the world and and you know we've even we've we've started to see some of the companies in in China you know in Asia that you know I have teenage kids and you know they're into social media and and making some videos of the likes of you know sort of like a TikTok or and these sorts of companies and these are companies that obviously originated and began outside of of the Bay Area and outside of the US as a matter of fact and and so the trend is absolutely is continuing for us to become a global uh, a global industry you know the world is getting smaller Ross and I think we can all see that around us and and then for someone like you who's now been in as you mentioned and in a, a senior finance leadership position for the last 15 years you've been a CFO for that period how has that role changed or how have you seen that role change from when you first took it on and you were maybe first aware of it through to some of the expectations that are placed on CFOs today they are enormous changes, I think, of the role in the CFO, you know, over that time. And and I'm going to call out a few of the key elements. The first thing I would say, look, you go back a couple of decades and the requirement or the strength of a CFO was, was really in the accounting skills. It was really in, you know, the technical skills. You were expected to be a, you know, a CPA or you were expected to be a, a you know, a chartered accountant. And the core area of responsibility was to ensure the integrity of the books and records of the company. Now, I still think that that is absolutely the case. So that hasn't sort of changed or gone away. However, the role of the CFO has expanded significantly beyond the role of an accountant or or the role of simply looking into the numbers and simply being in charge of the books. The CFO is essentially now a GM of the business along with the rest of the executive team, right? You go into that, you know, sort of e-staff room, you you have the functional expertise of being the CFO, the accounting and technical skills, but more importantly, you have to be a driver of the business overall. So you have to be closely engaged with the board of directors, the CEO, the rest of the executive team, and this is very, very important in all companies. I would argue even especially so in smaller companies, you know, in which the CFO is really an architect trying to help that company achieve growth, achieve scale. And how you do that is you have to absolutely 
you've got to be in tune with the needs of the business. You've got to know, okay, well, so, so a part of your job, for example, is really to lead and build that scalable infrastructure. I use the analogy often in, in my organization of we're trying to build a skyscraper at Illumia, right? We're trying to build a very large company, a big company. And a part of my job is I'm laying the foundation. So me and my team are laying the foundation of that skyscraper. And unless the foundation is really super strong and is able to scale, as you start adding the floors on top of the skyscraper, it's going to wobble. It's, you know, it's going to shake, right? So our job is to make sure that we have that strong, really solid sort of basis and foundation. You, you know, you're able to scale the company. Now, a part of it, to come back to the conversation we had from a technology sort of standpoint, is the CFO has to be really involved and be really engaged in terms of the technology being used in the enterprise. It's everything from the day-to-day automation of our business processes. So, you know, how can we automate our, our quote to cash process, right? The purchasing, you know, process, the hiring sort of process inside of your company. So automation is is super key. And then certainly in this sort of day and age where there's a lot of concern around security and the privacy of data and those kinds of things, again, a lot of the onus of that actually is on the shoulders of the CFO to make sure that if you're engaging with with customers and partners and stakeholders that you're securing the you know the environments inside of your company you're taking care of the data the information of your customers and so part of you know the the compliance aspects of of the role you know and sort of the managing of data is absolutely you know absolutely important the other thing i would say is just to build on the theme of the use of data internally because the business is moving so quickly, our job in my team, so me and my team, is to make sure that the company always has up-to-date, real-time information as quickly, accurately, and completely as possible. So, you know, we have to have, again, the tools, the systems in place. We have to have the KPIs, the benchmarks, the measurements. You can only improve things if you're able to track and measure them. And so, our job is to give the business intelligent information, right? So we take the data and we translate the data into information. And this is intelligent information that basically, you know, we're using to invest, we're using to drive allocation of resources across the company. And so using tools, using, it, it could be tools for BI, it could be, you know, CRM systems integrating, you know, with your ERP systems, you know, your Salesforce, your NetSuite, having access to information and using the information is really, really important. And then looking ahead, I would also say, I'm really interested in, you know, using artificial intelligence, using the capabilities in in machine learning to continue to automate our processes. A number of my colleagues have, have started to use a number of bots as an example in their close process. So to automate and to accelerate the close, you know, I'm exploring how can we use some more automation? How can we use, you know, some more software and bots? And even companies in trying to do the forecasting of their of their business, it's not so much just, you know, building Excel spreadsheets anymore. It's using a lot of historicals, applying a bunch of data science 
you know, on top of it, helping you to forecast. So there's a lot in there in, in terms of things to unpack from a technology sort of standpoint. But ultimately, the role of the CFO has evolved from being the accountant, from being the bookkeeper, the steward, the guardian of the financials, to really to being the guardian for the enterprise and, and driving the business, scaling the business, and really effectively being a, a partner to the board of directors, the CEO, and the rest of the executive team. There's so much in there that you can recognize has changed because if you think about being the, you know, the keeper of books and records and where the CFO role started to now all of the aspects that you mentioned, when you're thinking about the team that you build and, and the function that you build, there's so many capabilities that you would never have had to hire for today. So you mentioned technology, the use of AI, even embedding data science into the way you forecast. So how do you go about building the right capabilities to make sure that you as, as a leader and as a team can achieve all of that? It can be challenging in, in a difficult, at the moment, you know, the labor market is super competitive and very challenging. I think though, as you mentioned, you now have a diversity of skill sets inside of the CFO organization because, again, if you go back a couple of decades ago, it it could have been that the core sort of you know requirement is to have a CPA or have an accounting sort of qualification. You get sort of hired into the CFO team, and now if I look around, you know, the team that I have in place at Illumio, as an example, you know, I look at my IT team and I have you know, a core team of, of individuals who have extensive experience in data analysis, as an example, and experience in implementing and managing a host of business applications, you know, as we automate our process. So there is certainly a greater emphasis from a technology aspect of, of building the team. You know, we're also seeing more sort of hiring of, of MBAs or individuals who've gone through that that sort of broader training, the business training, if you will, understanding the pros and cons of, you know, how you shift your, your go-to-market, your business model, strategies for pricing, all of those attributes, which are a lot more about how you engage with the business and add value to the business. And so across the team, I, I have a, a variety of skill sets and it's more a breadth of experiences, education, and so on. So it definitely is a lot of diversity in the group. And when you mentioned that, of course, the opportunities of automation, which again, we're seeing across all industries and all different companies of all verticals and shapes and sizes, but particularly from a finance perspective, of course, automation only serves its purpose when it's solving a meaningful problem. What do you see as the, as the meaningful and pressing problems within a finance team, finance organization that automation could help with? The big challenge that companies are trying to overcome, number one, a huge amounts of data, information and data as a result of, of the internet, as a result of our ability to gather, to store, to analyze information has grown exponentially over the last few decades. And so information is there, it is plentiful. I think that companies that tend to win and companies that are you know, are leading their industries are companies that are able to maximize the data that they have, do really sort of, you know, so deep and comprehensive analysis of the behaviors of customers, their likes, their dislikes. And, you know, you can look at companies like Amazon as an example, or or even Uber, you know, and, and these are companies that are analyzing tons and tons of data, you know, every hour, every every minute. 
every second because you have to understand the trends of, you know, here is where, you know, the market opportunity is, here is a need for the product or service you sell, here is how you can meet, you know, you can ensure there's an adequate supply of services or drivers in the case of Uber to meet, you know, the needs of customers at different hours of every day. So all of this involves the extensive analysis and crunching of data. So I would say at the end of the day, it's about obtaining a competitive advantage in your business and in this sort of huge, um, you know, the mountain or the wall of data that actually exists, I think some of the leaders and some of the companies that are going to be the, you know, the winners are the ones who are doing the best job of this. And you mentioned actually earlier on about the like, talking about that, that using that data. Of course, you only use the data to, to get insights that can then shape the direction of the business. And you mentioned that actually the CFO is you know needs to be in tune with the needs of the business. And and what what you hear time and time again from CFOs is that they're trying to not just do that themselves, but they're trying to liberate in many cases their team from some of the more the operate the core critical essential operational tasks, but liberate some of their time and space so that they can be more effective partners to the business. Is that something that you try to build and apply within your team? Almost every quarter we do an analysis, which is a, a stop-start continue exercise in, in my organization, in which you know, we ask ourselves the question, if the work we're doing doesn't add a ton of value to the business, then we shouldn't do it. And so we have this ongoing quest to make sure that you know, the work we're doing is, is value added. We're automating our processes. We're doing the root cause analysis if there are issues. So I'll give you an example. So a couple of companies ago, we were looking to improve our close process, our monthly sort of closing of the books. A part of the challenge we noticed was we were doing a lot of journal entries, a lot of, of manual journal entries. And so we, we did a deep analysis, a root cause analysis of the journal entries to understand, okay, how many were manual, how many were, were auto-generated from the system. And if they're manual journal entries, the reason that we were doing uh, these journal entries, and the answer turned out that it was due to the fact that as AP you know, was coding invoices, that a lot of mistakes were being made and, and errors were being made, and, and therefore the entries were needed to reclass things around. So the solution there was we improved our, you know, our, our purchasing process, the coding of invoices, we did training. And so just by actually analyzing the root cause of journal entries, which elongated our process. We did that analysis, we solved the problem, and it shaved you know, an enormous amount of time from the close and improve our, our, our process, right? So at the end of the day, it comes back to the belief I have, which is it is hard to improve things if you're not able to measure and track them. And that is the reason I'm a big advocate for the use of KPIs, the metrics, the benchmarking of data, seeing how you're making, you know, the progress over time. And they're always a part of the goals and objectives because I leave through goals and objectives for my team. And so having the metrics, having things we can actually quantify and show improvements and efficiencies over time is really, really important. And you mentioned as well, that, and you've mentioned this previously, that the importance of trying to transform your context and in the case of Illumio into a data-driven environment and but that yet there's this proliferation of data and 
you're then not, your challenge is not only just to understand and, and synthesize this huge volume of data, but actually also to offer real-time data and insights to the business. So how do you square that circle of massive increase uh, of data and scope, but actually you want to offer not just data, but insights and do so in a timely manner? The key and the challenge is ensuring you're choosing to spend your time really smartly and, and spending your time on things that matter. It begins, you know, I think with a clear understanding of the strategy and the goals of the company. And I think it is really important. And again, I spend a ton of time with the folks on, in my team to make sure that all of our goals, all the work that we do is aligned overall with the strategy and the goals of the company, right? So it's a pyramid. It starts from the top and then it cascades all the way down. And so... If, as an example, the number one objective or the priority of a company is growth, then you want to make sure the way you you architect all of the activities and the things, the metrics you have in place and the things you're trying to measure, and also the incentive structures you build, you know, the rewards and recognition are for the behaviors that are really enabling growth. And so it is, it is important to have the alignment of, of goals and objectives ensure that everyone is marching to the same sort of drumbeat, if you will. And, you know, every quarter, as an example, I hand out a CFO Excellence Award to someone in my organization who has shown and displayed the, you know, the behaviors. They've gone over and above to drive the results and to achieve that sort of objective that helps to move, you know, to move the company in in the direction that we needed to. And so, in order to make sure everyone is is on the same page and marching to the same sort of beat, I think the deep engagement with your team is absolutely important. And this kind of gets into a little bit about the culture of the team and the culture of the organization, because I'm a huge advocate for doing the, you know, the one-on-ones, for example, with my staff on a weekly basis, doing the skip level, the meetings. I hold a departmental all hands on a, you know, a couple of times a a quarter. I have a channel on Slack, which is a CFO, ask me anything. And so I engage in, in exchanges and activities. So having that openness, having that transparency of culture in which you're absolutely clear and open and you're saying it over and over, here are the key objectives, here are the our goals, these are the objectives we're striving for. I think it, it builds alignment And I think employees fundamentally, if you treat them as adults and you're open and transparent and you have that trust and say, here's a journey, you know, that we're going on, we need you, you know, we would love for you to be a part of this journey and, and help us to kind of get there. Well, then it's, it's a powerful culture, you know, is built there. I love the, the Slack channel, ask me anything. So have you had any particularly challenging or controversial spicy questions or have or have the team held back oh my goodness no um it goes in all types of directions at, <laughs> at, at times and, and a couple of days ago a group of my my employees of employees in the company were on there and asking if are we invent are we investing in in bitcoin or in you know in, in cryptocurrency and 
I made the uh, the point that I'm going to stay away from things I don't entirely understand. So um, <laughs> the answer was no, we are not investing the cash in the company in crypto at at this moment in time anyways. Um, but, you know, so, so it does, uh, you know, especially the engineers would come up with some real challenging questions about the uh, the business, the financial strategy. And so there is a, you know, a lively exchange of ideas and, and information. I do uh, small group huddles. Um, I would hold a meeting with employees. It would be entirely unscripted, so we would not have any agenda. And I would invite, you know, probably in the range of, of 30 to 40, you know, employees, um, you know, into the break room or into a large sort of conference room. And it would be completely candid conversation. So completely open. Again, it's just a mechanism for them to ask any questions and make sure we have that alignment I'm talking about in place. And so it was a huge hit. I've done a number of those over the years. I still do. At Adilumio, we call it the bottom line, which is obviously a play on words, uh, you know, because I'm a, you know, I am a CFO. So, but those are examples, you know, the channel, the Slack channel, the bottom line, the CFO excellence awards, the all hands, you know, those are the, the kinds of things I try to do to ensure that that engagement is continuing to happen in between the office of the CFO and and the rest of the company. And employees have a a vehicle or whatever to go and ask any question about anything which is on their minds at any moment in time. So there's so many aspects of this that's that's all about people-orientated, leadership-orientated efforts and initiatives. And going back to your earlier point, in some ways that could not be further away from the the keeper of books and records because that's not necessarily like a, a human-orientated activity. It's very numerical, very analytical. Is all of that time and effort that you put into building the team and the culture, is that something that comes naturally or did you actually have to develop and hone that over time? It's actually an area I, I have a lot of interest and passion for because I think it gets into the belief I have that over time, the role has evolved as we have as we've discussed from being a, a job that was heavily focused on really the tangible aspects of the role. You can call it the IQ, to also including a lot of emotional intelligence now or EQ. I believe that executives and leaders who are coming up through an organization really need to have the balance. They need to have the mix of IQ and EQ because your skills from a technical sort of standpoint is almost a given if you've you've reached a level in an organization. I think the companies, the leaders, the individuals who are really successful are the ones who really understand the importance of, of EQ as well. And this is where having the high amount of like awareness, having the ability to work in teams and lead teams, showing a lot of understanding, a lot of empathy. So those are, you know, a lot of the attributes and characteristics of high EQ. And the question you're asking about, is this something that I've had to learn over the years? I think it's a combination of of nature and nurture. So it's a little bit of both. I think you've got to get outside of your, you know, the comfort zone, I think, you know, initially and, and stretch yourself. And, You know, for some individuals who would argue, oh, well, you know, I'm introverted. I don't want to go and do, you know, these kinds of things. I don't think it has anything to do, you know, in terms of being an introvert or being an extrovert. I think 
It's about how you get on with people, how you you relate to people. And I think it is an essential aspect of leadership in this day and age. It is the connection you form. I don't think all of us or anybody is, you know, naturally a great sort of, you know, speaker, orator, whatever it is. And and that I think is isn't even as important as the ability to be honest, to be sincere, to listen to people, have that empathy. And ultimately to build a connection and build trust. And that I think is the most important aspect. And because if if your team and if your individuals trust you, they're going to support you, they're going to be loyal to you, and they will be a part of your journey for many, many years. So I think the aspect of trust, the connection, the empathy, the support, all of that's important. It takes a lot of practice, you know, as well. And so, which is why I said it's a combination of nature and nurture, you know, because it's hard work. It's not easy. It's amazing how just how many guests we've had, CFOs, that have mentioned time and time again the importance and and power of sincerity and empathy in the way that they lead. Which, of course, when when you listen to it, is you understand why they would mention that, but it just comes up time and time again. Which again, from the leaders of finance departments, you wouldn't always necessarily think would be critical, but clearly is. Yeah, absolutely. You're talking about building the team and building the function of finance as well. And we were, we were mentioning that the roles have changed, that the demands on, on the teams have changed. And that the ultimate challenge of building, not necessarily motivating and, uh, and so on, which is another part you've talked a lot about, but actually building and selecting a world-class team, because given that war for talent, it's arguably harder now than ever. It's of course something that you're having to do because you're always scaling in and in fast growing and scaling organizations. In the war for talent, you have to be able to offer the team you're trying to build and hire a lot more than just a job and more than just you know a paycheck. Whenever I hire individuals onto my team, I tell them, look, I may not necessarily help you to become a better a better IT individual or a stronger you know analyst in data science as an example, because I don't have the skill sets to to really help you do that. The areas that I can help you is how to become a lot more effective as a leader. And if you're looking to grow, if you're looking to develop certain skills, an example would be, I can help to coach you in how to give a board presentation or how to, how to show up in front of executive audiences and you know how to basically up-level you know, the work, the analysis you do to cater to sort of the executive audience, you know, the board, investors, so on and so forth, right? So for me, I spend an enormous amount of time on the coaching and the mentoring of the folks on my team. And this, you know, sort of comes back to what I mentioned a little bit ago about I believe in doing, you know, the one-on-ones on a, a regular sort of basis, always having a close you know, interaction and relationship with the folks on my team. And so, because ultimately the job I have is to grow them and develop them and make them really strong as leaders on their own, because as it is, I go out and I hire intrinsically individuals who's, who are smarter you know, than, than I am, because I absolutely think as a leader, you, you do not, as a matter of fact, you should aspire to be the least smartest person in the room. You know, you go out, you hire really smart sort of people. And I think intrinsically, if you hire A players, you hire smart people, you probably don't need to do a ton 
to motivate them because they are intrinsically driven and and motivated. I think though the coaching, the mentoring, the support, the removal of obstacles in their way to help them to be successful are all the things you can do as a leader to really you know help them be successful. And a great thrill for me is if I see the folks on my team who go on in future years to bigger and better things in life. And that to me is ultimately the reward you get as a leader is when you see how successful, you know, and if you've had some small impact or some small sort of influence on that individual, it is absolutely a tremendous thing to feel that, oh, great, I have contributed in a really small way to the growth, the success of another individual. You're clearly investing significantly in your team. You're in a role where the, the scope and what's expected of you has increased dramatically over the last 10, 15, 20 years. And yet you're doing so many critical things for the business. So how do you prioritize between all of those different demands on your time? <laughs> oh, it's well, it's a lot, Ross. Um, you know, <laughs> don't have too much of a social life. No, um, no, not, not entirely true. Um, so look, I, I think there's no such thing as a normal like week or month or quarter, you know, and the business obviously has its, its ebbs and flows and some of it is going to be, I guess, event driven. You're in the middle of doing you know, a fundraising activity or you're getting set for a board meeting at the end of the quarter or building an annual plan and so forth. So there are certain times of the quarter, certain times of the year when you know, you might be drawn into different areas and directions and, and maybe you don't have as much time to spend on these things. I try to make it a priority because again, it comes back to when I think about the top three most important things I do as a leader, as an example in the company, I would say on the list of top three is the hiring and the coaching and the developing of great people. And that, I believe, has to be one of the top three things every successful leader has to do. It isn't something you do after hours. It's not something you do on the weekends. It's not something you do during your lunch break. But you have to build that in, and that has to be a core part of your job. Okay, so I have always said over and over and over, the most important job I have in any company I have been at is the building and leading of great teams. If you were to ask me and say, okay, Anoop, you worked at this company and that company, is there something you really are happy about, something that makes you so happy and proud? I think that nine times out of 10, I will say, I'm thrilled and I'm I'm ecstatic about the team I built in place. And yeah, the team I hired and grew and developed, and that is really the legacy I'm leaving in that business. And so for those people that, that are working in finance and trying to develop themselves as a leader, what advice would you give for them so that they're prepared for the challenging and increasingly complex role of the CFO? Number one is something that we've talked about a fair bit, which is you have to branch out extensively simply just away from just sort of the books and records. So I encourage all of the aspiring you know, CFOs to spend time away from your desk to get involved with the business. You know, if you happen to be in in manufacturing, as an example, make sure you get down to the floor, you know, the factory floor, if you will, make sure you walk the floor. 
make sure you talk to the people who are designing the product and building the product. If you get a chance, you should go and meet some customers. You should go and talk to customers, listen to customers. You know, if I go back to some of the things I did in, in my earlier days as I was was moving up the ranks, I mean, I did I did a few of those things. I spent half a day on the phone in, in like a call center and I was just on the phone hearing, you know, the, the, the customers who were calling in and maybe they were unhappy, unhappy with the product and they were complaining. And, and for me, it was completely an eye opening, you know, exercise, but just to be away from my desk, away from the books and, you know, the Excel sheets and just to be out there learning about the business learning about all aspects of the business, I think is super, super important. And then the other thing that we talked about is the importance of EQ, the importance of emotional intelligence. So continue to hone and develop that area. I'm sure all of them are super smart and qualified and they have all the, the chops to be great accountants and great CFOs. But if you want to be a great, ultimately, I think a leader, I think having the EQ, having the emotional intelligence is really important as well. Great advice for anyone to follow. For any of our listeners that would like to connect with you or, or perhaps follow what you do online, where's the best place for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn. I am extremely active on, on LinkedIn. And so I, I encourage anyone who listens to this, if if they would love to get in touch and stay in touch to, you know, to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Anoop, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been absolutely a pleasure to speak with you. Enjoyed the conversation so much. And, you know, we talked about things I really am, you know, I'm passionate about. So I could keep going all day if we had the time, but we, we don't. One last thing. If you have a question you'd love to ask a guest, visit cfoplaybook.fm and submit your question there. This show is brought to you by Soldo the brighter way to manage business spending and expenses. With Soldo, you can control every expense, track spend in real time, automate financial reporting, and then use those insights to fuel growth. Learn more at soldo.com.